for the glory of the risen King. Excuse me. Amen? Amen. It's my privilege to introduce to you a couple of folks from Nazarene Theological Seminary. Some of you have met them already. I want to just make sure that you know who they are. It's been my privilege since I've been at Nazarene Bible College to have the chance to connect with Dr. Roger Hahn every once in a while. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a consummate scholar, author, leader, editor, hiker, and churchman. Dr. Hahn's been married to Dorothy for almost 43 years this spring, right? And they are of parents to three sons, Jonathan, Matthew, and Timothy. Most of all, uh, Dr. Hahn is a follower of Jesus Christ. He is a student of the word and a proclaimer of the faith, and it's our privilege to have him as a part of the NBC community this evening. Would you welcome him? And then in the middle of the room in the green shirt that you can't miss is Levi Jones. Uh, Levi is a, an employee at Nazarene, Bible, or Nazarene Theological Seminaries. He's married to Becca. Uh, actually, Levi was a student online at Nazarene Bible College for a couple of years. He finished his undergrad at uh, Southern Nazarene University. He graduated from Nazarene Theological Seminary, and this summer he's heading where a number of you would like to go. Uh, he's, he and his wife are going to co-pastor a church in Oklahoma, so would you welcome him? <laughs> Dr. Hunt. Thank you. It is a joy to be with you, uh, a joy to be back here again, and to see... Uh, some of my friends that I've not seen for a while. Good to see you, Joe. Um, I, I just want to say uh, we are here to represent Nazarene Theological Seminary. Uh, Levi and I will be around if uh, the preacher doesn't preach too long, uh, that you can talk a few minutes after the service. And uh, there are some materials on the table uh, just behind the, uh, this room, and uh, we'd be glad to try to answer any questions. Or if you just get the email address, uh, you can email anybody at the seminary off of our website, and we're happy to try to explain ways that perhaps uh, God could use what the seminary offers to be a part of the unfolding of his plan in your life. Uh, we would be delighted if that were the case. One of the advantages of uh, NTS is uh, we get to have whole classes in single books of the Bible. And one of the classes I get to teach on occasion is the Gospel of John. It's not like Dr. Deasley, but it's a marvelous book. And uh, I am going to uh, read a text from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 20. And I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the word and then to enjoy, I hope, uh, as the Spirit leads us through some observations from this text. <clears throat> John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of light. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, speak to us through your word this evening. Grant us ears to hear not just another sermon or some other preacher. Grant us ears to hear your spirit making your word come to life for us. And grant us hearts to obey and to walk in your light. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I first saw the little plaque on the pulpit of Old First Church of the Nazarene in Hot Springs, Arkansas. It was the summer of 1971 that Dorothy and I had just gotten married in the Old First Church sanctuary right over there. And uh, on a Saturday night and the next Saturday night we were in Hot Springs and the Sunday following I was asked to preach. We were going to be youth interns for that summer. And Pastor Dean Galloway asked me to preach that second Sunday night. We were in town and I went to the church Sunday afternoon to practice. And there on the pulpit was this little plaque. Sir, we would see Jesus. I didn't realize at the time it was the King James translation of the phrase that we read in verse 21 of our gospel text. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I didn't know then that I would see that little plaque on dozens and dozens and dozens of churches, mostly across Oklahoma as I did interim pastoral work and pastoral supply work while I taught at SNU. But what I realized that very instant as I looked at that plaque that Sunday afternoon was that the people who would be there that Sunday night did not come to see a show or to hear a fine speech. Uh, they were not present to listen to jokes. Well, maybe a couple of them were, but uh, they hadn't had much uh, entertainment or encouragement along that line. They didn't come for stories. Uh, they didn't come to see me or to hear me. Some of them weren't quite sure what they were there for. But they came because they wanted to and because they needed to see Jesus. My only value that night and my only mission to this day in any pulpit is to enable people to see Jesus. John, the gospel writer, often works with several different levels of meaning at the same time as he wrote the fourth gospel. So, so I have no doubt that verses 20 and 21 are describing some real flesh and blood Greeks, some Gentiles who came to Jerusalem around festival time and wanted to see Jesus. Uh, perhaps they wanted to talk with him to find out if he could do something for them. We're, we're not quite sure. But for John, 
Seeing was always much more than just images passing through the pupils of their eyes into the eyeballs. For John, seeing is always ever bit as much spiritual as it is physical. Seeing is understanding for John. Seeing is insight for John. Seeing is ultimately faithful obedience, which he calls believing. Always the evangelist. John, the gospel writer, saw those Greeks' statement as an opportunity to present Jesus to us, the readers, so that we might see and understand and believe in Christ. So after the Greeks say to Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus, they just disappear. We never hear from him anymore. Uh, their job in the text was to put that line into our minds and our hearts. And in the words that follow, Jesus begins to explain, maybe to those Greeks, I don't know, certainly to the disciples then and especially to us today. He begins to explain what it means to see him. I think we can summarize the first few verses by saying, seeing Jesus means dying to self. For Jesus and for John, to really see and to understand Jesus meant that we must understand his death. The flow of this text is really strange on the surface of things. Lots of Johannine texts are really strange on the surface of things. The Greeks arrive saying they want to see Jesus. Andrew and Philip bring them to Jesus. And then he seems to, he says, well, the hour has come. And you're going, hello? They just, they want to see you. And he says, the hour has come. And you're wondering, how does that connect to them? But it doesn't seem to much matter. It is, in fact, good news for those of us who've been reading this gospel from the beginning, because starting in chapter 2, he's been saying, my hour's not yet come. And over and over and over in this gospel, he's saying, the hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come, my hour's not yet come. And to hear, the hour has come, it's like, oh, we've been looking for this. Except, it becomes pretty clear pretty quick, that the hour is the hour of his death. So John tells us, some Greeks come and say, we wish to see Jesus, and he says, great, it's time for me to die. And we're going, huh? We will never understand Jesus if we think he simply came to be a miracle worker. Uh, we won't really see him if we look at him as simply a great preacher or a great teacher. To know the Jesus, Jesus knew himself to be means to know that Jesus came to die. In John's gospel, he puts it this way several times. I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, in the synoptics, he prays to his heavenly Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, Jesus didn't come to earth to be famous. Uh, he didn't come to become rich, or to live in the suburbs with 2.3 children, or however many it is nowadays, uh, to have a nice house and a car, two cars, three cars, whatever, and six cell phones. He didn't come to have a successful career. He didn't come to achieve personal fulfillment, to become all that he could possibly become. He came to die. Not just to die, but to die to save us from our sins. To die and to be raised to newness of life, to usher in a new era of God's mission on earth, of new creation, transformation, restoration of all creation. 
And one of the first words about Jesus that appears in the Gospel of John is the witness of John the Baptist back in chapter 1 when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now in verse 24 of our text, Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus understood that the fruitfulness of his life was to die so that you and I might live. The ultimate multiplication of his ministry required his death. And until you and I understand that, we've not seen Jesus, even if we watch the Jesus film a thousand times. But John was concerned with more than just that we understand that Jesus and the cross were and are forever inseparable. I think John wanted us to understand that none of us will see Jesus and no one else will see Jesus through us unless we die too. Verse 25 continues his thought. The one who loves his life is losing it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Until you and I die to ourselves, no one will see Jesus in us. I'm going to be a cranky old man for just a minute, okay? It used to be an important part of holiness and Nazarene preaching to talk about dying to self. Uh, now, I know we didn't do it really well sometimes and said some stupid things sometimes. We're going to do that forever. Uh, but we've become such captives to pop psychology that we hardly ever mention this fundamental biblical truth anymore. Uh, maybe you talk about it all the time here, but it doesn't happen in Kansas City very much. Instead, we tell ourselves we've got to learn to love ourselves more so we'll be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I understand the need for a healthy self-concept, I think, but that doesn't come from trying to harder to love ourselves. It comes from understanding accepting and agreeing with God that we're made in his image and that Christ died for us and that as a result of those two truths we are extremely valuable to God. But when we love and cling to our own selves, our own lives above all else, Jesus tells us we're losing the very things we're trying to hang on to. One of the fascinating things that... Um, jumped out, of, out at me from the Greek text a couple years ago. Uh, this verse sounds very similar to something Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels. The one who loves his life will lose it. The one who present tense loves his life will ultimately lose it, future tense. And it suddenly dawned on me, this verse in John, verse 25, are both present tense. The one who is loving his or her life now, right now, is right now losing it. The harder we try to hang on to what we are and have and who we are, the more it slips through our fingers. If we are clinging to our own lives, to our own selves, if we are the center of our world, if we're focused on ourselves, if we're turned in on ourselves, if the most important thing in the world to us is ourself and our own life, then Jesus is telling us we're right now in the process of losing all of it. We must realize that Jesus was not the only seed that had to die to become fruitful. We too 
our seeds that remain alone unless we die, which enables us to bear fruit through that death to ourselves. January 1956. I'd been born, but uh, I wasn't real cognizant of world news, and I learned about this later in my life. But the religious and secular worlds were shocked by the news of the death of five young missionaries in Ecuador, killed by the Aka Indians, a tribe forgotten in time in many ways, a tribe those young missionaries were trying to contact and to share the gospel with. And as the world tried to figure out why bright young people would throw their lives away, as they put it, doing something like that, they discovered the college diary of one of them, one Jim Elliott, and found these words in his diary. A man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. A person is no fool to give up what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose. I think Jim Elliott understood verse 25. The one who is loving his or her life right now is in the process of losing it. It is only by giving it up, by dying to ourselves, that we begin to see Jesus, to really see him, and we understand that part of what that means is dying to ourselves. Well, John then turns the prism to a slightly different angle. And we might summarize it this way. Seeing Jesus means glorifying the Father. To really see Jesus means understanding that his agenda was glorifying his Father, not himself. Now, as a first century Jew, I'm relatively certain Jesus would have been fully aware that one of the main Hebrew words used in the Old Testament for glorifying very literally meant to make heavy. I've come to value that truth more later in my life. Since money was the measure of weight in that culture, shekel, think pounds in the British system, since money was the measure of weight in that culture, to make someone or something heavy was to make them more valuable because you're piling more coin in their pocket or more gold or more silver. Rich people, important people in that culture were heavy people because they carried around a heavy weight of money. They also tended to be heavier in uh, the way I am because uh, most folks couldn't afford in that world to eat enough to get fat, but rich people could and often did. For people of that culture to get glory meant to get more and more wealth, more and more value, more and more honor, more weight. Uh, Jesus' vision, though, was to accumulate honor and value for God, not for himself. A radically odd idea in that culture and ours. And our text tells us that glorifying the Father was not easy for Jesus. Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Glorifying the Father meant obedience to God's plan. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. You see, because Jesus embraced the cross and the death that lay ahead for him, he was able to conclude his words, Father, glorify your name. To glorify God meant to make the presence of God real in that world. Uh, one of the, listen carefully, one of the many things that the people of the ancient world understood far better than most of us. Notice my assumption there. There are a lot of things 
people in the biblical world understood better than we understand. That's not a modern way of thinking. It just happens to be true, I think. Hmm? One of the things they understood better than most of us is that it's easier to worship, that is, to ascribe worth and value to, to glorify, to make heavy. It's easier to worship something you can see than it is to worship a God you can't see. The images, or as we usually call them, the idols, of the ancient world actually had evangelistic purpose for their religion. It was to make visible, to make easier to conceptualize. It was to be able to get a handle on, an image of, to touch, to make that God more visible, more tangible. One of the ways Jesus glorified God was to make God visible. John already told us that back in chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known, who has made him visible. Or as Peter would tell Philip just a few chapters and days after our text, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus brought glory, value, honor, worship to God by making God visible, known, and real in his world. He also glorified the Father by drawing people to himself. Verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Uh, John clearly understood that when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he would draw people from themselves to himself and thus to God. And God thus became valued, honored, worshipped, glorified when people saw the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. But there's just a lot of folks in this world who will never see Jesus in some kind of abstract theological way that is articulated by the shorthand we call theology that we learn in places like this. It, it helps us study faster to be able to conceptualize terms and things, and we have code that we talk, theological language. But there's just a whole bunch of folks who will only see Jesus when they see Jesus in us. Which means we must glorify the Father rather than ourselves. The issue at stake is still who is most important? Who is most valuable? Who plays the heaviest role in our lives? And if they come with the words of the Greeks on their lips, Sir, ma'am, we want to see Jesus but they encounter our ego on display as we speak. If they see us loving ourselves rather than our neighbors, if they see us instead of seeing Jesus, they may never see Jesus. And glorifying the Father will become really hard for them. Well, it's not easy for us either, but it is still the Father's plan. For us, glorifying the Father will mean bringing God's presence into the circumstances of our lives, making God real in our lives, making God visible. If nobody at your work knows that you're a Christian, how's God going to get any glory out of that? You say, well, I work at a Christian place. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I know, that makes it much harder. <laughs> So you work for a Christian organization or an employer, even a Bible college or a seminary or a church. But if God is not visible there, if God is not real there, if God is not present there, you can also be sure people will not see Jesus there. We glorify God by drawing people to Christ, even at the cost of taking up our own cross. 
We draw people to Christ by Christ-likeness. One of the profound transforming moments of my life happened as a seminary student at NTS. In uh, the Wesley's theology class being taught by Dr. William Greathouse. Actually, it was the semester before he was elected general superintendent. He quoted Wesley saying, Do not try to preach holiness drivingly. Preach holiness drawingly. Whoa. In that very moment, God began to draw me closer to himself. I, I suddenly saw that the way I had conducted my own life with my finely developed logical arguments, my intellectual analysis of the faith, my judgmental spirit of anybody that couldn't think that way, my arrogant pride in performance, all those things were designed on my part to drive people to Jesus like they were a bunch of cattle. I discovered it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that to me. He drew me with cords of love, with bands of compassion. And I realized that day a vision of holiness, that is a vision of God that was not bathed in love, that was not bathed in kindness, wouldn't draw people to God, it would drive them away. If we can die to our selfish desire to be the center of all, if we can learn that difficult discipline of sacrificial love, we too can draw people to God. Not because we're saying, hmm, I'm the magnet, but by being like Jesus, they somehow look past us to him and are attracted to him. Well, John turns the prism one more time. I suppose you could summarize the final words of our text by saying, seeing Jesus means walking in the light. When the crowd asks Jesus who he really was, remember the words, who is this son of man anyway? In typical Johannine fashion, his answer seems to not make sense. It seems to go like that. Who is this son of man anyway? The light is with you a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. You ever been there? While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. You know. Darkness and night were common metaphors for John for sin and evil and disobedience. And for John, there was always danger in the darkness. He writes in John 11:10, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Uh, just as darkness and night were metaphors of sin and evil, light was the common metaphor in John for righteousness, obedience, openness to God. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, light is a metaphor for Jesus himself. Several times he says, I am the light of the world. For people to see Jesus, we must walk in the light that is Jesus. And verse 36 indicates that walking in that light means believing in, trusting in, placing our lives at the disposal of Jesus. Believe in the light means to trust Christ to be our light, too. It means trusting that there will be a light for the next step of our lives. Uh, did you say I was a hiker? Well, that's closer than a biker, that's for sure. <laughs> One of my favorite memories, uh, it's now over 20 years ago when my boys were little. Uh, we camped out, we were tent camping in those days. Um, we had a lot of money, we couldn't afford a trader, so we had a tent. Uh, and we were up uh, 
just north of Woodland Park on the road to Deckers at a National Forest campground. And um, as was always the case when my wife picked out a camp spot, it was all the way across the campground from the toilet. And uh, one of my sons woke up in the middle of the night needing to go. Can't you wait till I can't wait, can't wait. And, and there was evidence that maybe he was correct uh, by uh, his, well, there was evidence. So my wife hands me the flashlight and says, you said for better or for worse, this is one of those times. I said, better for you and worse for me? She says, you want me to wet on your sleeping bag? I'm going, I'm going, okay. Now there was a path from near our tent across the campground to the toilet. And uh, my son wanted the flashlight, and he, he would just shine it all over everywhere. And I learned very quickly. I grabbed it away, and I finally discovered the only way it would work to keep from tripping over ropes and roots and uh, coolers and other lawn chairs that late-arriving campers had graciously placed in the path. I, I need to keep that thing just about a foot in front of my feet so I could know where I was going. Uh, my son wanted to look way, way out there. I said, no, we've got to do this one step at a time or we'll be flat on our face. Part of the problem of our lives is we want the light of Jesus to shine somewhere way out there and to tell us that we're going to be successful pastors and we're going to have great growing churches and we're going to have marvelous reports at district assembly and people are going to pat us on the back, and we're going to feel successful, and we're going to be happy. And we want all those things to be the light that's shining out there. The light that Jesus offers is to show us the next step. Uh, by the way, the next step is going back to class and uh, <laughs> learning what you're supposed to learn between now and whenever class is over. That's the next step, okay? Um, to learn to walk step by step in the light that Jesus shines on our path. Seeing Jesus means walking in the light. Well, as I was growing up, I often heard preachers ragging on Roman Catholics and their crucifix with Jesus on the cross and bragging about, we really have the right thing, our cross is empty. <clears throat> I understood their point. I think they missed a point too. But what seems important from this text isn't seeing crosses, it's seeing Jesus. <clears throat> and that happens as we die to ourselves as we glorify the Father, as we walk step by step in the light that he sheds on our path. And I would love for us to sort of pray that as we come to the conclusion now. Uh, I think wherever we, our singing group folks, uh, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see Jesus. That has to happen for us so it can happen for others. Okay? I, I'm going to say, would you stand and let us pray. But the first part of the prayer will be our song prayer, okay? Father, we do want to see you. Grant us the grace of learning to die to ourselves, learning to glorify you, the patience to learn to walk step by step in the light you shed on our paths so that we can see you and that others can see you through us. Send us from this place to grow ever more into that vision. We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord.